The goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to one more episode of the Data Transformers podcast. And today we are very honored to have Dr. Kirk Bourne and uh, he is currently the Chief Science Officer of Data Prime. So I I'm very eager to find out about that role. And prior to that, a very illustrious career in, across many companies and um, any influencer list that you could find anything remotely connected to the data, data science, you will find Kirk. Kirk, welcome. Thank you. Very glad to be here. So with that, um, I know, Kirk, you recently switched to, to a new position, Chief Science Officer of Data Prime. And um, it's so curious that it's not a Chief Data Science Officer, it's a Chief Science Officer. So what's going on? What is Data Prime and what's your <laughs> role there? Well, I, well, just a small joke about that. I, I've had many different roles in my career, uh, all the way back in the beginning of my career was astrophysics. I did that for 20 years. Uh, I, was a, I worked at NASA. Then I worked uh, at a university. I was a professor of astrophysics and computational science. I, I actually taught data science. And then I worked at Booz Allen Hamilton, where I was an executive advisor and a data science fellow. And then, now I'm working for a startup. And so my wife said to me, gee, you've had many careers. And I said, nope, I've only had one career as a scientist. <laughs> I've just mm -hmm. had many different jobs. So so calling me chief science officer really fits my my persona. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a scientist first, okay? So whether it's astrophysics or data science or something else. And so uh, I'm doing that now and it's a, a startup. So I guess you could officially say I retired at the end of March okay? <laughs> for the first time in 40 years. I didn't have, a, I don't have a full-time job anymore, which is kind of scary. Uh, so we don't have too many clients yet as a startup. We're just finishing the platform and uh, we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. But so, so right now it's, it's a new adventure for me because I'm working without full-time pay and uh, working for, <laughs> with, with, a, with a team of about 15 people. <laughs> I just left Booz Allen Hamilton where I was working with 27,000 people. <laughs> I worked at NASA for 20 years where there was 120,000 people. <laughs> so, so anyway, this is very different. So I mean, actually would love to hear more about uh, why you made this change and what um, caused you to suddenly join, join a startup. I mean, I think many people are, are curious as to, as to that transition. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, it's very pragmatic. <laughs> uh, so I was working at Booz Allen Hamilton for six years. Um, so my role was basically sort of the brand ambassador to the social ambassador for data science. Okay, so I, I didn't actually work on a lot of projects, but I basically uh, was a speaker, public speaker, very active on social media, I, again, sort of being the face of data science for the company. And uh, the company has been so successful over the last few years that they decided they didn't need my role anymore, which I understand. I mean, I, I was doing something that helped build that, mm -hmm. that branding for the company. And so I was actually... Uh, sort of essentially asked to retire at the end of March. And so that was, and so I was, I just figured I was just not going to be working anymore. 
but it was kind of scary not to have a, any kind of salary anymore, <laughs> not, get, not getting any kind of payment. Uh, so I contacted a friend that I had known for years and uh, I knew he was working at a startup. And um, he said, well, if you want to come to work for us part-time, we can help <laughs> pay some of your bills. <laughs> so, so there was a pragmatic reason. Uh, but of course, the real, the real science re- and uh, personal reason is uh, I, I just, it was just an amazing opportunity uh, to, to work with this uh, group, uh, b- building a platform. Uh, we're primarily focused on what I would call basically like, like a, a dating service for data scientists and, and recruiters, if you want to think about it that way. <laughs> uh, so, so, so we're not like a jobs platform. There's a lot of places you can go and you can find jobs and apply for jobs. You know, you can t- probably think of some of those like Glassdoor and Indeed and Monster.com. We, we're, we, we don't do that. We don't, we don't post jobs. All right, we, we don't post jobs. What we are is a matchmaking service. You, I see. You know, the job candidates, uh, in my, I mean job candidates in the data profession. So it's not just data scientists, but data engineers, database engineers, uh, data visualizers, data storytellers, data analysts, machine learning engineers, anybody who's got mm-hmm. some kind of connection, uh, cl- cloud engineers, you name it. Uh, so upload your profiles uh, and that profile is in, goes in a database and then recruiters come looking. Uh, they have a specific job description and we do a personalized match between the job description and the candidates in our pool to, and give a ranked uh, scored uh, list of the of potential candidates. And so no one is, so we're not, again, we're not posting jobs anywhere. We're just helping people identify the, the best job for them, for the data professional and the recruiter to find the, the best candidate for their position. And so I tell people get on there right now, whether you're looking for a job today or not, once your profile is in there, it can be in there for years before the perfect job comes. I mean, I, when I was at, George Mason University, I was a tenured full professor. I thought I was going to be a tenured full professor for the rest of my career. I, I had no intention of li- leaving that job because if you know anything about academia, mm-hmm. if you have a tenured position, you're guaranteed employment <laughs> to, to, you know, till 75 years old or whatever, right? For life. And uh, why would I leave that? I mean, I, ever since I was young, I always wanted to be a professor at university. You know, I, you know, after 20 years at NASA, I joined the university, became tenured full professor of astrophysics. Mm. teaching data science, my favorite thing. And uh, why would I leave that? Mm. Uh, but uh, two or three years before I left, I saw that Booz Allen was doing all this amazing stuff in the data science world, you know, building up a big team, uh, creating all kinds of interesting content and running data hackathons. And I said, this is fabulous. If they ever had the right job, I might consider taking it. Mm-hmm. And so I put my resume in there. And then uh, it was about almost two and a half years <laughs> later, right? That, uh, probably two, about two years later, uh, I got the phone call. You know, I completely forgot that I had put my resume in their system, right? And so but the, the, they offered me the right job, an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, and uh, that, that, was the, that was the key thing is that I, I put that in there, even though I wasn't interested in leaving my job that I had. And that's what the data prime is like. We're not, we're not asking people, if you're looking today, put your resume in there. I'm saying, put your skills profile in there. And someday there might come the perfect job for you, whether it's next week or next year or three years from now or whatever. And uh, if it really is the perfect match for you with the perfect offer, uh, you want to be ready for it. Interesting, Kirk. Actually, um, so there is a debate going on right now about this matching skills versus what's required. So I think uh, there is a 
debate is that the companies uh, deliberately put a lot of requirements, like even beyond what is actually required for a job, right? So, and then a data scientist job is not necessarily running models. Actually, we had a guest, uh, you know, we published this this week, is that it's not running models, right? You need to do a data engineer's job, data, you know, analyst job, so com- a, a role, I should say, a combination of those things. So if the job description itself is so heavily overloaded with, you know, everything and anything, you know, I need for five years requirement, you put 10 years experience needed and things like that. And then here you have the candidates not knowing how to present themselves and skills. So can you talk a little bit about the state of the skills required versus this, uh, the skills needed versus this, uh, you know, it's what's available? Yeah, well, that's a real problem. It's been a real problem for years. Uh, I remember uh, several years ago at the time I was still at the university, uh, when when the the, data, the big data revolution <laughs> started, I mean, I, I would say it started in 2012 because there were sort of three major events that year. You know, there was the uh, the White House announced the National Big Data Initiative with mm-hmm. like 300 million dollars or something like that of investment. Uh, there was an article in the Harvard Business Review, you know, saying data scientists the sexiest job of the 21st century, and the McKinsey report came out that talked about the massive skills shortage and data professionals. I mean, they talked about the million and a half person shortage. And they're all of a sudden, everybody in the world was paying attention to this, right? And so all of a sudden job offers sort of, I mean, job descriptions start popping up everywhere. And for example, I remember seeing job descriptions as, besides, like you said, they, they listed every skill imaginable. They also said things like Hadoop experience, at least 10 years experience. Well, Hadoop had only existed for like three years or something. Right? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so, uh, so the, so the fundamental problem is the people who are writing these job descriptions don't necessarily know those things about the profession, right? They don't, they don't know that Kafka has been around this long or Hadoop's been around for this long or, you know, Python 3 has only been around for a year or something like that. So, so, so there's, there's sort of a mismatch of, of, of sort of the knowledge set of the recruiter versus the knowledge set of the data scientist. So, so, so that problem still exists. I mean, that's fundamentally true. So anyway, so I think we haven't really totally solved that problem, though I think there's a lot more uh, knowledge growing on both sides, both from the job candidate understanding uh, that, again, the job describer might be a recruiter who's not a data scientist, and the job recruiter isn't necessarily the best place person to, to know exactly that you can't ask for 10 years of experience in a, in a, in a, in a language or something like this that's only been around for less than 10. So anyway, so I think we're... Um, we're, we can, we're sort of working on that. And that's part of our platform. We're still building out our platform is uh, there, there's a little bit of a human in the loop with our okay. thing. Okay. So it's not totally like the match.com. If, if I got like 10 job offers, yeah. it would take me like a second to know which one really matches me or not. Right. If, if you, if you talk about the person who's the data scientist, who's building a platform like this, they may have to they may have to spend like an hour trying to validate whether those recommendations really do match the candidate right mm-hmm. so they look at my pr- resume and they look at the job description and they're looking back and forth at these things and they, they spend two or three or four minutes on each one whereas me I, it takes me a second or less than a second no that's not me no that's not me no that's so you you swipe left or swipe right because you can so the human in the loop helps to validate and so we're trying to get that kind of human validation into the process, both from the recruiter side saying, no, this is not the person, this is not the person, this is the person. And on the, on, on the job candidate side, when they see the, the job matches to their profile, they say, no, that's not me, no, that's not me. Yeah, that's me. So Kirk, is, is um, Data Prime meant for 
job seekers or is it for companies looking to hire data scientists? Because I would think that there's from a recruiter perspective, a company organization perspective, there's probably some sort of ethics, right? You want to make sure that algorithms are not um, unfairly biasing uh, certain individuals or, you know, you want to make sure you're recruiting the, the best talent based on right. all sorts of factors. And also from a, if I'm an employee putting my resume in, what type of data privacy do I have to ensure that my personal information isn't shared? So there's a, which aspect of the spectrum is a data prime looking to protect or to serve? Well, all of those things are valid concerns. And so again, we're, what we primarily deliver is a scored list, all right, based upon skills, experience, and preferences, okay? So preferences include things like whether you want to move or not. Well, that's almost not relevant anymore because everyone's working from home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Salary, types of jobs, things like that. So, so ideally, you know, the factors that are determining that scoring are based entirely upon things you put in your resume that are relevant to what you're looking for. And then likewise for the, the job descriptions. Uh, but we're, but in a, so in some sense, we, we sort of circumvent some of those ethical issues because we're not sharing the data. We're just basically uh, giving as much information as people willing. Okay, so when people upload their profile, they can make their profile private or not private and then parts of it private or not private. And so once you're on a, on a scored list that's, that's shown to a recruiter, they only see what you, in a sense, give them permission to see. Now we're not seeing it. I mean, again, the algorithm sees it. It's one of those things like a recommender engine, right? When you shop online, products are recommended to you, but you know, no, no one out in the world is, <laughs> is seeing what you're buying. I mean, the, the algorithm is seeing what you're buying. And if you don't like what's being recommended to you, you just, you pass, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't do it. And so, so, so again, we're, we're hoping that we're not sharing anything that people don't want shared because we have those settings there. And again, the, the decisions ought to be made or the matches are made upon these objective criteria. But since we're not doing the recruiting, it's up to the recruiters more than anybody to, you know, to, to, to implement those ethical practices to make sure you're not recruiting or hiring, interviewing people, but, you know, with, with some kind of filter. Okay. Okay. So, so hopefully we're not applying a filter. We're just, a, we're just, again, doing matches. If you want to think about something as simple as cosine similarity or something like that, I mean, that, we're just basically doing a mathematical match of two vectors right and so the vector of the job description in high dimension is the vector of your skills and experience in one dimension then you just do that intersection and see who is the best aligned mm -hmm. to the position and, and so uh that's a simple way of describing the thing but but it's so again we're not looking at the data mm -hmm. and it's up to the recruiters to make sure they're ethical in what they're how they are using that data but that's that's true at any with any job recruiter whether our platform was here or not right with so kirk um, switching topics here so one of the things that i um, mean i think people notice about because you're very social media savvy as you mentioned <laughs> you're a very prolific content producer right so you speak a lot you write a lot and you tweet a, a lot and then so everything is really, really uh, high quality stuff. And then I came, I stumbled across this rocketdatascience.org. I believe that's your own, I'm assuming where you put your thoughts out. And one of the articles that really piqued my interest was advice for fellow data and analytics leaders, okay? And then, um, so one thing that you do mention there uh, as part of your advice is that we are no longer about uh, this managing data at the speed of business, but uh, worry more about managing business at the speed of data. 
right? So, so what spurred you to say that? Uh, so, what, what, what are you noticing that that you thought that it, it should be mentioned? Yeah, I was uh, I was struck by that again through the years of how the data revolution has happened. I mean, I know in very early years, again, 2012 was that sort of benchmark year where those three events happened. Yeah, I would go to conferences and sometimes people would say, hey, we got X hundred petabytes of data. And this other person would say, hey, well, we have Y hundred. You know, my, my data is bigger than your data. Mm -hmm. So there was all this discussion about trying to outdo one another. So people came up with this expression. We do business at this. We do. What do they said? They do data at the speed of business. That's what people are saying. And I said, that makes no sense to me. Right, because data is coming at you way faster than your possibly your business can possibly move. Right, I mean every organization has inertia. Right, mm -hmm. you, you just can't like yeah. Even startups, they do need to pivot from time to time. But most large organizations, especially, can't just like completely change overnight. And so, so I said you really need to have your business move at the speed of your data because the data is what's moving the fastest, and there's pretty much nothing you can do to stop it. Yeah, because if you run an e-commerce store. And that's how you make money. You can't shut down your e-commerce store if you're getting too much data. You get too many customers buying stuff. Well, we got too many customers buying stuff. Let's close down the e-commerce store for a month. No, you can't do that, right? I mean, so, so the data just keeps on coming. And so, so you really have to find a way of having your business. And when I say your business moving, that means the analytics, the insights, the decision-making that is based on data. So when I say business at the speed of data, it's, it's basically like the, if the, it's, it's almost like someone's just bringing you out plates and plates of food at a buffet, right? And and so you, you can maybe keep up with the first plate of food, but as they bring out more and more and more, you, you essentially fall farther and farther behind it. And, and it's just all goes to waste. And I feel like data is that way. If we don't, if we aren't moving at the speed of our data, it just piles up and it doesn't get used. And, and, and what's the point of even collecting? So actually in that same article that Ramesh read, and I did too as well, um, what also struck me was the, the, the quote that you had about the CIO talking about spending three years investing in machine learning. And then the, it was like you wasted three years of machine learning time, but then it, you also needed to, you needed that three years to, to catch up to. Um, so it's, it's almost like a contradiction of, you know, companies, investing into new technologies like machine learning ai but also needing have having to do that because of the catch-up like what do you think is really um pushing like what's the happy medium what should organizations really be doing should they be doing a lot of the r d work just to catch up or is it something that is something they they have to be doing that's part of their business as usual to be doing this type of yeah, I think this, I like to think of it as sort of like, uh, you know, almost like preparing for a race, like in the Olympics or something. Uh, so you, you get to the track, if you get there too early and you do all these warm ups, you can be exhausted by the time the race starts, right? So it's sort of like wasted effort, right? But if you get there at the last minute, you, you're not warmed up, you, you're not going to perform as well because you're not ready to go. Okay, so so that was sort of what that was quote was about. The, the guy said, if you started this now, this quote was from from like four years ago now, so it's a kind of an old quote. But the guy said, if you started machine learning three years ago, he said it was, you you would have wasted your time because right, it's like you were too early. Too early to the game. Yeah. Uh, but but if you but if said if if you don't if you don't start now, it'll be too late. <laughs> it's too, or, or whatever something something. I don't remember exactly how he said it, but it said if you started three years ago, you're about you wasted your time. If you if you don't start now, it's going to be too late. Uh, so. So it's sort of like that. And so I, so I think, again, using that analogy of, of sports warm up, 
a lot of stuff that we can do to get ready is the warm-up activities, right? So we, so having a data science team uh, sort of work with the data, to explore data, to try to find business value from data, to see what kind of business value can be created, products, services, customer experiences, whatever. Do that early, all right? Don't wait to the day you absolutely need it. But, okay, but, but, it, but on, on the other hand, they can't spend, you can't, the data science team can't spend their whole career in the sandbox, as I call it, you know, playing with data. Eventually this has to be deployed, right? It has to, it has to be made operational. You, you, need the, you need the data engineers, the machine learning engineers to operationalize this stuff, okay? So you just can't keep warming up. You actually have to run the race eventually. Extending that thought a little bit. Um, so one of the things uh, we seem to read a lot, hear a lot, we, we know the best practices. Hey, start with a business problem, you know, and then prepare the data. So we know the best known methods. The framework is there, people, process, technology, data. So it almost seems like the, you know, it's the world knows what the framework should be, what the best known methods, best practices are to making successful. And on the flip side, we hear this data, uh, about 70% of the data initiatives fail kind of stuff, right? So, so the thing that I personally struggled, what's the gap, right? It's, it's, we know the solution, this is how we need to solve, but looks like when the problem comes, we fail at it. So what's missing? I mean, with Booz Allen, you went, you, uh, know, you you've been evangelist and thought leader. So what's going on in this space? Yeah, so uh, at Booz Allen, they developed, a, this is before I came there. So they developed this uh, framework called ADAPT-C. Okay, so you have, you have the analytics, A-D-A-P-T-C, <laughs> ADAPT-C. Okay. So you have the analytics, you have the data, you know, you have the, uh, the analytic opportunity, you have the processes and technologies and C, culture. Okay. So two things are key there, not just the data and the analytics capability and the technology. The other things that are key there is the analytic opportunity and knowing how to identify something as a real analytic opportunity. And instead of just people playing with data, so let's see what patterns we can find in the data. They have to identify a real opportunity. So it's focused. But the other key thing is culture. And culture is, it's, everyone says, says this all the time, culture is the most important thing. I mean, I've been on many podcasts and I've listened to many podcasts yeah. and I think, I think every single person says the same thing. <laughs> so, so I'm not being original here, <laughs> but culture is key. And so what does that mean to me when I say, so, so, so literally today, I just wrote a, a blog about this topic and there's two sort of cultures that I mentioned in this article. One is the culture of uh, uh, data democratization. Mm -hmm. and the other is the culture of experimentation. All right, so, so basically you encourage people uh, to explore data, okay, and, and, and see things in data. So, so data democratization means anybody in the organization who sees something in the data should say something, even if you're not a data scientist. So if you're working with data, I'm not saying you go and look at data, you shouldn't look at it, but if you're working with some kind of data and you see a pattern there and you say, oh, that's not my job, that's the data scientist. Well, no, maybe there's something there you should say something about. But the, data, the culture of experimentation basically allows people to test things you know, what we call the fail fast to learn faster <laughs> process, right? So, so you test things early and often and you, you have tactical failures so that you don't end up with strategic failures. So you, you learn what things work and don't work, you know, fast so that you learn faster. Uh, so, so again, the, the sort of the culture is important as well as analytic opportunities. So, a completely different way of saying this, which I like to say, which is that doesn't repeat what everyone else is saying about culture, is uh, this a concept called analytics by design. Hmm. All right, so maybe I'll write a book about this. Someday. Yeah. <laughs> Start with your expected outcomes. What is it you want to produce? You want to be 
say you want to build a fraud analytics platform, or you want to build a, a facial recognition algorithm, or you want to build a self-driving car. So you have an outcome in mind, right? Not just a self-driving car, but a safe self-driving car that, yeah. that, doesn't, that doesn't kill little children. Okay. So yeah, so you have an outcome, then you back up, say, well, okay, that's what we want to achieve. So what do we need to do to get there? How, how are we going to measure that we were successful? And once you have all that in place, then you build it. So analytics by design follows those three steps in the correct order. Specify the outcome, specify how you're going to get there, specify how you can prove you're going to get there. Hmm. So back in the day, I was at NASA, they had this thing called Six Sigma, which was very similar, right? So yeah. Six Sigma is mm -hmm. you say what you're going to do and do it and then prove it. Okay, so it's all about the metrics. It's all about proving it. So you, so you specify those metrics in advance and get get approval and buy-in from the stakeholders. You don't just say, I'm going to declare <laughs> that I'm successful. You and I are going to agree what success looks like. Yeah. And that's what the that's why it's a culture. The, the organization has to agree with, with what their North Star is, what their mission is, what correct looks like, what success looks like. And then you, so you work back from there. So analytics by design helps uh, in some of those cases where people have failed in their projects because they they were they, maybe they were wandering in the wilderness again. They just got in their car and decided oh, we're going to just go drive somewhere. I we did this when we were in school. I, I understand this, right? You just it's Friday night. You just get in your car. We're just going to go somewhere. I don't know where. We're just going to find someplace cool to go Friday night, right? So that's okay when you're in college, right? But it's not okay if you're running a, a million-dollar business. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify. And please do rate our podcast. Also, please go to our website, www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you.